0: The scripture passage uh, this evening is going to come from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You can find it in your bulletin. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? We're also going to do another reading this, this evening in, in uh, celebration of respect to uh, Asian Pacific American Heritage Month. And I have Susie up here. She's going to read the passage in, in Korean.
1: Um, I'm going to read from the Korean Living Bible translation, same passage. <laughs> 어떤 형제나 자매가 당장 입을 옷이 없고 끼니를 때울 양식이 없는데 여러분 가운데 누가 평안히 가십시오 몸을 따뜻하게 하십시오 배불리 먹으십시오 하고 실제로 필요한 것을 주지 않는다면 그런 말이 무슨 소용이 있겠습니까 이와 같이 행동이 따르지 않는 믿음은 그 자체가 죽은 것입니다 그러나 어떤 사람은 이런 말을 할 것입니다 너에게는 믿음이 있고 나에게는 행동이 있다 행동이 따르지 않는 내 믿음을 나에게 보여라 나는 행동으로 내 믿음을 너에게 보이겠다 여러분은 하나님이 한 분이신 것을 믿으니 잘하는 일입니다 귀신들도 믿고 두려워섰답니다 어리석은 사람들이여 행동이 따르지 않는 믿음은 아무 쓸모가 없다는 것을 모르십니까 우리 조상 아브라함이 아들 이삭을 제단에 드릴 때 그가 행한 일로 의, 의롭다는 인정을 받지 않았습니까 여러분도 알고 있듯이 그의 믿음에는 행동이 따랐으며 그것으로 그의 믿음이 완전하게 되었습니다. 그래서 아브라함이 하나님을 믿었으므로 하나님은 이 믿음 때문에 그를 의롭게 여기셨다는 성경 말씀이 이루어졌고 그는 하다 하나님의 친구로 불려졌습니다. 따라서 사람이 의롭다는 인정을 받는 것은 행동으로 되는 것이지 믿음만으로 되는 것이 아닙니다. 이와 같이 기생 라합도 Israël 병을 숨겼다가 안전하게 보낸 그 일로 의롭다는 인정을 받았습니다. 영이 없는 몸이 죽은 것처럼 행동이 따르지 않는 믿음은 죽은 것입니다. Amen.
2: Would you join me as we pray? God, we know you are the God that speaks. We know that your words have the power to bring from death to life. And we pray that you would work toward that end in Christ's name. Amen. I think there's a temptation when we come to this particular passage in this particular city. As you heard the passage read, and uh, you hear it in a city which is known for being very busy, very driven, very stressed out. I think it's possible to interpret James as saying, do more. Get busy for God. I think that would be a mistake, because I think the question that James is asking isn't are you spiritually busy, but it's rather are you spiritually alive? He's asking the question not so much of imitation, but authentication. I was thinking back uh, this week to the film Blade Runner. Uh, the first one, has anybody seen that first one? Just show of hands. Yeah. And the second one was I thought was good too. In case, you, in case you want to know my opinion, I thought the second one was good. But, you know, if you know the film, you know this. Uh, and it's a very complicated film on lots of levels. So I, I'm just hitting one strand here. But uh, the setting is you have uh, these synthetic humans, replicants, that are dwelling amidst other human beings in a futuristic Los Angeles, a futuristic world. And the plot really centers around a burned-out cop who's played by Harrison Ford and a replicant that he falls in love with called Rachel. And I I was reading a a blog article on NPR site and came across with, I thought, an interesting reflection on this. The writer says, what makes the machines in Blade Runner even more convincing is their human form. Contrary to clunky computers or traditional robots, they can mingle amongst us unnoticed. The lines between what is human and what is machine are so blurred that Ford falls in love with Rachel and teaches her to love him back, or at least to fool him into believing she loves him back. What level of cognitive sophistication is needed to feel love? So the question's being posed, right? You know, how much can you imitate love for it to be real love? And I would say that James is like putting his finger on that question. He's, he's drawing a comparison here. The difference between replicant Christians and real Christians. And what's the difference? It's love. That's the difference. Now, if you were here last week, or you've been following a long reading, you know that when James talked about love last week, and, and the necessity of you and I fulfilling the deeds of the royal law, he then immediately talks about the second great commandment, love. So love is on James' mind when he gets to this idea of living faith and dead faith. We would, we, we would, miss, the, we would miss the passage if we forgot what he was just saying to That would be bad Bible study. And James is saying that a justified person, that is a person that is accepted before God, who is deemed righteous before God, who has a living faith before God, that justified person will demonstrate, by love, good works. Okay? So immediately he's clarifying, he's not talking about spiritual busyness. He's not talking about being the volunteer of the year. He's not talking about the theme song of your life being Change the World. He's talking about not that sort of advocacy that runs so much in our city. He's talking about a different sort of activity. One that is birthed by God into a life of good works. Now this is how one person in the New Testament said this. The life I live in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and who gave himself for me. That's what he's talking about. Now, that's critical because when you hear a statement like, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, you know, you would expect in our, tra- our tradition, you would have heard an, eh, 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 you know, an alarm, a grace alarm, right? Or Abraham's faith was completed by his works. Whoa, what's going on here? And for that reason, many people have said, you know, James is, you know, is he really contradicting the, tis- uh, the teaching of the New Testament? Well, James, being, James is being provocative and he's being bold, but he's not exaggerating. And he's actually in agreement. Last week, I, I read to you a passage out of the book of Ephesians where Paul clearly says, we are saved by grace and not by our works. In the book of Romans is really the best explanation of what that means. But no, in the book of Romans, right in the thick of what he's talking about, Paul virtually echoes James's words. This is what he says. Do you not know, for it is the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the, sorry, let me say that again. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's the same thing we just heard here. But it's two different angles and contexts. You see, Paul is concerned for people to understand how justification is established James is concerned for you and I to understand how it's demonstrated. Those are the two different ways they're looking at the question together. If we don't get that straight, we'll just basically interpret, especially in this day and age, that James is preaching, you know, the American, Westerner, modern gospel, which is simply those that enter through the gates of heaven, those that make it into a really good afterlife, are those that really try hard and try to be good, and are sincere, and if they're religious, that's an added thing too, as long as it's a good religion. That's the gospel of today. That is not the gospel of the Christian faith. And so, James then will draw a comparison for us to demonstrate this, the difference between this sort of living faith and loving faith, and that which is not, by looking at Useful faith and useless faith. And that's what I want to look at briefly in these minutes together. So first of all, what is useless faith? I would say it's characterized by two things. One is, uh, it is about managing impressions. And the second thing is, it's about correct knowledge. So let's look at the first one. Now, many of you are familiar with the term punch the clock. Now, when it's best light, it means you go in and do your job. But it also has a connotation of someone that just basically, right, they just show up to the job. They just do the minimum. Their heart's not in it. They're just taking up space and time. And no one really notices any different. I read an article this week that said, I think it was in Switzerland or Sweden, in an accounting firm that... uh, a man died while at work, and for two days, no one knew it. No one no one even recognized. Obviously, everybody was just sort of punching the clock, doing their thing, right? Just going through the motions. A similar thing can happen in the church, in the Christian faith. What we do is we get satisfied with the impression of good works. I think there's no better contemporary sitcom example of this than uh, the character of Michael Scott from The Office, right? He not only has a way where he's constantly trying to portray as if he's working, you know, where he carves into a schedule of things like free play and creative thought for hours and hours, but he also loves to give the impression that he's doing good works. He goes to a, a class of underprivileged grade school students Right? Some of you are laughing because you know when he promises that he's going to pay for their college education. He has no real thought to this, right? And then 10 years later, he has to go back, can't do it. Or he holds a fun run for rabies awareness. Why? To draw the attention away from the fact that he ran over one of his uh, employees. He's constantly doing good works, right? But he's only concerned about the impression they give not the works in and of themselves. So James sketches a realistic scene here. He says, um, you know, someone comes in, and uh, they come into the community. They're lacking adequate clothing and food. And uh, the, the response is not heartlessness, like go get a job or why are you here. The response is to offer a spiritual solution for a physical problem. He says, essentially, in the language there, may God be with you, that was a common saying, right? May God bless you, which is essentially to say, may God go with you, but I ain't going with you, right? It's, it's sort of the, the way where you and I are presented with a need, and instead of meeting the need, we offer a prayer in place of the need. I think I mentioned, it really has only been recently, in the last year or two, as I've walked with suffering people, that I've noticed a tendency I have, and I think it's part way ignorance and part way I'm indicted by this passage, and that is when you talk to someone who's in the hole, and they're just you know they're either grieving or suffering, uh, we might ask what can I do for you, and they will often say I don't know, and say well you know well if you think of something please know we the church wants to help we want to help okay can I pray for you. Well, I wonder if love might go somewhere further, because the reason they're saying, I don't know, is they're just totally worn out, right? Maybe love instead would say, hey, what do you think if I went ahead and did this? Would that be okay? You see, that isn't satisfied with just saying a prayer, but moving to this idea of a physical solution. The other thing that useless faith will do, it it tends to shift responsibility from the self to others, and the others might be God or the person themselves. James says that, uh, you know, when he talks about this, uh, be warm and well-fed, one New Testament scholar says there's a verb there that, that can be interpreted two different ways. It's essentially could be saying, I wish you well as you take care of yourself. That's the interpretation of it. Or may God feed and clothe you. The idea of, you know, I pray that God will handle this for you. And it is a way to substitute real action for something in between. Um, I was thinking there are different ways that we might do this. Let's just take the example of response to the poor. Instead of acting, we might instead get off on the side about uh, a disagreement about whether welfare is a good idea. And so that's where we stay. I disagree with welfare. Or where we stay is, listen, the government has programs and the church has programs. And so we really don't do anything, but instead we're in this world where we're putting the thing onto the system or onto the person themselves so we don't really have to deal with it. And it can happen in lots of ways. Take racism, for example. We could maybe say, well, listen, slavery happened a long time ago. Jim Crow was a long time ago. There's now laws in place for fairness. So, inactivity, nothing. And so James calls that out as useless faith. But there's another thing, too, here. He nails this idea of substituting correct theology for action. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, I will show you my faith by works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. He highlights two ways that faith can be useless. One is a sense to do this thing where we say, that's not my gift. He says, you know, you have faith, I have work. So essentially he's going, listen, uh, you know, maybe you have the gift of helping people. Like, you know, you might not have the gift to be on the diaconate here, or folks that, you know, propel us forward with justice and mercy. But still, you have a call to be a neighbor, right? The New Testament never, it calls faith a gift, but it never calls works a gift. Works are what God has planned for all believers that follow Him, all that have the call. And so it's this false dichotomy between, you know, maybe, uh, listen, my gift is teaching, or mine's encouragement, or my is this way, or my strengths are this way, therefore... And a second part of it would be, and let me say this. This is important, especially to our crowd. God is not calling us to do everything. He's calling us to do something. We don't have to do everything. We can't do everything. This church is, you know, we we have a local vision. We all have limits. We, We talked about boundaries, right, a couple months ago. But the question is, am I doing something? Am I doing something? But then there's this idea of uh, substituting correct theology. And he he says even the demons have good theology. I mean, they have to to be actually fearful of God. They have to understand him. And I was thinking particularly about this tradition, this corner of the garden in the Christian faith, what's called Reformed Presbyterian. And I think there's a special... Uh, tendency towards this, to say that real faith is about having the correct theology. That's real faith. So we understand when uh, we get up to heaven, a voice is going to say, uh, please take your seats, uh, pick up your pencils, and we're going to do the test. You know? that's our thought. Now, I don't know if that's because we uh, we got the lingering of Greek dualism or whether it's part of the Enlightenment, but it ultimately is really a, a truncated view of what a human being is. Right? Where we it, we've got mind, heart, and will. But it's this focused on the human being is primarily the mind. So therefore, what I believe is what saves me. J, James is explicitly challenging that, just as Jesus, his older half-brother, did. It's interesting in Matthew twenty-five, the only sort of parable we have about the judgment seat. At the judgment seat, there's nothing about pen- pencils and paper. Basically, Jesus just goes, did you care for the needy? Did you care for the needy? And so, just like when you watch a great doctor in action, or you watch a great virtu- virtuosic, is that a word, virtuosic? Let's just call it one, virtu- virtuoso musician, someone that's really good. Just like them, you know, like a great Christian, you don't have to ask, do you know this knowledge? Of course they know it, because you can see that they know it. They are living that knowledge. Useless faith tends to go like this. Sincerity plus orthodoxy plus minimal effort. That's what useless faith. Uh, I read a quote that hit too close to home for me, so I thought, if I'm in pain, why not share it with you? You know, we can all be convicted together. There's, there's misery and company. So who is James getting at? This is how one person puts it. The person that they accept the biblical diagnosis of the human condition. They understand how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection remedy their estrangement from God. They like to read and talk about spiritual things. They know the central teachings of the Christian faith. They seem to live decent lives, though they may indulge in a vice or two. They adhere to orthodox evangelical theology. Yet, yet, there is nothing distinctively Christian about their behavior. They may be decent neighbors and may perform a little community service, but there is no real self-sacrifice, costly obedience, no good deed that goes against their grain, nothing that challenges their well-designed life. I don't know if that touches you. It touches me about what do I understand God to be calling. So let's wrap this up by looking at useful faith. And I think, you know, Joe's uh, testimony earlier was, was uh, wonderful when he talked about uh, love and the gospel that leads you to commitment. That's one thing, commitment, and the other is sacrifice. Let's do this briefly. Um, first of all, James to demonstrate this idea of useful faith is love that commits itself he takes the most unlikely example the outsider of outsiders he picks a foreigner to Israel right a pagan he picks a woman which in that culture would have been outsider and then he picks an immoral woman a prostitute he picks Rahab to demonstrate committed faith The very one who would be named by Luke in the uh, lineage genealogy of Jesus. And the very one who would be named in the book of Hebrews as someone who had great faith. Rahab. Now if you know the story, uh, spies are sent into Israel and they end up lodging at her place. And Rahab shows anything but conventional faith. Um, she, uh, She first of all, does, uh, practices dangerous hospitality. The very fact that they're there puts her life in risk. And then just socially, right, she's already an outcast. Second of all, she defies the word of the king. They find out the spies are there and the king directly sends a word and says, we know they're there, let loose. And she defies that word, royalty. She then gets creative how she hides the spies. She doesn't just say, here, here, go, go in this closet. She hides them in a space where they can't be found. And then she affirms their faith as much as she says, Remember, too, not just me, but remember my family. She's outward thinking. Then she lowers them through a hole in the wall, again, risking her lives. And then she gives them the best place to hide because she knows where the authorities will come looking. This is anything but punch-the-clock faith. It reminds me of the Good Samaritan that Jesus talks about. The Good Samaritan doesn't just come and bind up the wounds, right? But then he puts the man on his animal, which may have meant he started walking. And then he takes the man to an inn. And then he pays the innkeeper to take care of him. Then he says, I'm going to come back and check and make sure he's okay." That's anything but punch the clock. You know, this sort of committed faith is is creative. It's courageous. It's surprising. It's attractive to people. This kind of dead faith that James is talking about, no no wonder why people have no attraction to that. No wonder why people outside the church would say, "Eh, no thanks, I I can do something this way. But it's this living faith that the Spirit creates who's alive. And the connection, of course, right, is we understand that we've got the Lord who doesn't just uh, come and find us. But he sacrifices his life to remove a multitude of sins, then doesn't he, like the Good Samaritan, carry you to a safe place and care for your wounds and heal your wounds and keeps checking back with you and puts you in community? This is the beauty of the gospel. But the second one is sacrifice, and he talks about Abraham. Now, first, understand that James affirms that Abraham was justified in God's sight by believing by understanding what, understanding what he knew of God's grace and believing God's promise. But how did we know that that faith was real? God calls him to sacrifice his son. Now, I don't got time to go into all the questions that come in about that, but let me say this. It was a special parable, in a sense, a unique parable, to teach us that while Abraham won't have to give up his son, God will have to give up his. That's what God is demonstrating But even Abraham, early on, knew that God was going to provide. He says to his servants, we're going to go over here and worship, and then me and the boy will be back. He didn't believe his son was going to die. He believed God was going to save him. And so Abraham's trusting God is willing, enables him to sacrifice. His belief in the promise of God enables him to give up more and more and more and more. And you know this. If you are someone that is walking the Christian walk, all of us find these times where God puts his finger on that very thing that is so precious to us, and he says, I want you to surrender it. Maybe it's a relationship that we thought, this is the one. Maybe it's someone in our family that we felt like, I need them in my life for a long time and they're gone. Maybe it's a job that we thought, we, but it's this thing, God knows he has to go to that one area. He has to go there. And so, in conclusion, let me say this about useful faith. Uh, Martin Luther said that the first, the highest, and noblest act of faith is to first believe in Jesus. group came up to Jesus and said, what must we do? What work must we do? And he said, believe on him who was sent to you. Believe on the Son of God. But a life of good works then begins out of that. Uh, listen to what Luther said here. The man who is not at one with God, who is full of care and kept in bondage, he asks himself with anguish, how many works should he perform?" He runs to and fro. He questions this man and that. He nowhere finds peace and does everything with sorrow and fear. But the Christian has liberty and joy. Let me use a driving example here. Here's what God does He enters your life, and the first thing He does is stop you from going in reverse. Where the works that you're doing, you think you're driving forward, but you're really driving backward. Because the things you're doing are out of fear, or they're just, you want to be this particular person that's in your mind. And then he brings us into neutral, and I'll call neutral the rest of the gospel, where we realize we're loved when we're just standing still. We're loved when we're not doing any fancy tricks, when we're not revving our engine. Christ has come and given us complete acceptance. And then we begin to move forward. We press on the gas, and the good works are running from the fuel of God's grace. The good works are moving us in a brand new way. And we start to cover some distance. We start to go some places. We start to see things we hadn't seen before. We start to touch lives we hadn't touched before. The Holy Spirit fertilizes the waters of grace in us. And so, it's not only just head faith or will faith or even heart faith we're after. We're after whole faith. We're no longer content doing impressions of Christianity. We want to be the living thing. We no longer live to justify ourselves by our works, but rather our works become a singing praise that we're justified. And lastly, we no longer want to just punch the clock, but we want to be part of the greatest endeavor there is going on earth, and that is kingdom building, the building of God through us. In this world, this is the kind of faith that God is offering you and I and has implanted in you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for wanting to deliver us. You speak strong words, even hard words at times, provocative words to shake us up that we might live. And I pray you would do that for each of us in this room for your glory. Because you are the one that has been the first actor. Because you have given your son. Because his life lives in us. In Christ's name, amen.